0: To uh, getting into the next chapter, but this has been a, uh, an incredible chapter. Uh, I think it was right in timing with where God has us as a church. Uh, you know, with uh, the great concepts that we've been looking at. We've been working down through this chapter. Remember, we started in chapter 12, verse 1, where it talked about your bodies being living sacrifices, mine and, and yours giving it to the Lord and letting God have our bodies for whatever He wants to do for His work in the ministry. And we have been coming down through this chapter, once we saw that concept, we've been looking at the character qualities of God, that as you and I grow in the Lord, and you go through the process of spiritual growth in your life, that these things become part of your lives to help us become a living sacrifice. You know, there's so many things in the Christian life that we we know the terminology, but we really don't understand the process or really what it takes uh, to have it operational in our lives. When we talk about being God's man or God's woman, we're basically talking about these basic character qualities of God that we've been looking down through here at. And I want to begin reading here in verse 9 again. Uh, We've been through this before, but I want to keep this passage together as we read it. And then we'll pick it up where we left off last week. And remember, I told you these are the reality verses. This is what the reality is of the Christian life. You can make it anything else in the world you want to make it, but at the end of the day, it's what these things that we're talking about here are. So here's what it says. Picking it up in chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affected one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceit. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide all things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this great passage and all of the things that we've gleaned from it so far. And yet, Lord, there's so much here that needs to be talked about today. Lord, I ask you, Holy Spirit of God, give me the clarity of thought. Let me get everything in the right order to say it as easy and as simply as I can, that it'll go into the hearts of your people and that, Father, they'll understand that true spirituality is not what we know about the Bible, or how many times we come to church a week. But true spirituality, uh, true walk with God is the character qualities of God that we put in our lives, that we live our lives by. Help us, Father, in everything that we say and do today to give you the honor and the glory. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, you'll remember so far as we come down through here, last time uh, uh, we, we stopped in verse 16. And uh, that's where we stopped, and we're going to pick it up on the last part of that today. But you'll also remember I talked to you about the great concept of Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, about iron sharpening of iron, how that we as Christians need to help each other, not hurt each other. Remember I told you that iron sharpening of iron, when you sharpen something, you use something, a harder metal to sharpen a softer metal. But when the iron sharpening iron, both metals have the same uh, value as far as hardness is concerned. So while you're shaping one, it shapes the other. And that's a picture of what we ought to be as a church and what we're going to get to uh, starting next week as we understand that great concept even more. Building each other up and keeping each other sharp. Uh, Then we talked about verse 14. Bless them that persecute you. Bless and curse not. We talked about verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. (coughs) And weep with them that do weep. Then we got into verse sixteen. And verse sixteen says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Uh, Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. And we talked about how this is a great principle, is based on how that we treat people in the ministry, and I gave you many examples last week. We'll certainly not go through them again. But I told you how that in most churches, in most ministries, with most pastors, that they're going to cater to people who have some influence. You've got a lot of money, you're going to get preference over somebody who doesn't. If you uh, have a political position or you're somebody that has some kind of clout in the city, uh, you're going to get better preference than somebody who's just a factory worker or somebody who is basically a nobody. And, of course, uh, we went through that and looked at the fallacy of that. And I told you that it's all the time, uh, the thinking is today, that the church will be more appealing when people look at it if so-and-so is going there. Uh, you know, somebody says, well, what kind of church is it? Well, you know, uh, uh, so-and-so goes there, and he's a state's attorney. Or so-and-so goes there, and he's a federal judge. Or or so-and-so goes there, and, man, he owns half of Kansas City. You know, it kind of, pastors think that that kind of stuff makes their church more appealing. And of course, uh, we saw the fallacy of that last week, and we know that that, that's not true. And, uh, And I told you that the key to all of this, the key to everything he's saying here is the concept of unity. And that's what he's trying to get across. Don't separate your church into a caste system. Don't have it set up where you have rich people and then you have poor people and then the rich people get the best and the poor people or the middle line people don't get anything. Make sure that there's a unity. And that's the key to everything in the church is one word. It's the word unity. And the key to unity is found in the verse there where he says, be of the same mind one toward another. Now, what does he mean by that? Be of the same mind one toward another. It's not my mind nor is it your mind. But the thing that brings unity to any church <coughs> is not my mind or your mind, but all of us getting the mind of the Lord. And that be the Word of God, the principles in the Bible. When you operate on biblical principles, <coughs> then the whole church gets, as we say in the world, on the same page. It's not your mind, nor is it my mind, but rather both of us getting God's mind toward people and toward the aspect of ministry. When a church or a pastor doesn't operate this way, then they fall into the trap that leads in time to corruption. And what happens is, in the last part of that verse, it simply says that they become wise in their own conceits. Now, that's a great phase, phrase. Now, the word conceit, when we think about that word, and I know that there's many different applications to it, but the easiest one to grasp, when it's somebody that is conceited, that's by definition a self-flattering or overinflated opinion of oneself or maybe in some cases even their accomplishments. And in the ministry there's great examples of that. In the ministries you, you see it all the time. I think of I think of uh, of uh, Joe Olstein and I don't mean to pick on Joe Olstein but I think of Joe Olstein uh, as someone who uh, uh, is a great example of this. A couple of months ago, maybe six months ago, him and his wife was flying on a plane, and uh, they were sitting in a section someplace where first-class section, and something had to happen, and they had to move out of that section and go back with the common people. And and she raised an absolute fuss to the place where it hit the news media because she didn't want to go back and sit with the common, ordinary people. And and that's the mindset we get into when it comes with people like that. You know, you see it all the time. I know a, a pastor in town here uh, that pastors a church, and I wouldn't tell you who he is, but it's a situation where I remember when he was an evangelist. And I remember when he was an evangelist that uh, he would never take a meeting in a church that the pastor couldn't guarantee him 5,000 people for that meeting. In other words, if you had a church of a 1,000, if you had a church of 900, if you had a church of 20, if you had a church of 3,000... He wouldn't come to preach in your church. You know why? Because he thought (coughs) his ministry was so vitally important that he couldn't waste his talent and his preaching on anything less than 5,000 people. You know, that's conceited. That's the height of conceit. Well, I know of a story, Bible models again. I know of a story in Acts chapter 8 where uh, Philip was having a great revival down in Samaria. Remember that story in Acts chapter 8? Great revival. The whole town was coming to Christ. What did God do? God pulled the lead evangelist out, Philip, took him to the backside of the desert for one Ethiopian. You need to hear the story of Christ. You see the difference between modern day ministry and then following the biblical principles in the Bible? Uh, It's incredible what goes on today. And all that stuff just feeds your ego. All that stuff just feeds your ego. Back in the early church, and we're going to study this when we start church history. We started it last Tuesday night, but as we come through this, uh, we studied, uh, started church history. A little bit later on, I'm going to give you about a guy by the name of Clement of Rome. And Clement of Rome lived uh, at the end of the first century going into the second century. And he come up with the idea of what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 2 calls the doctrine or the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans is a Latin word and a compound of two words, uh, uh, Nico, uh, laity. Nico is Latin for conquer, and laity is, con- is Latin for uh, the common ordinary people. And Nicolaitans, or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, was to put a priest class over the common people, that the pastors and the hierarchy of the church were on some. A spiritual level that was over the common everyday man. A little bit later on in time, this move went into the Gnostic movement. Gnostic means knowing. And the Gnostics were a group of people that thought they had a greater, superior relationship with God than the common, common ordinary man. Therefore, they felt that they were better on a higher level. And you saw how that went into and developed into uh, a, a system of religion where there was a priest class on top of all the masses, we, we uh, criticized the Roman Catholic Church many, many times for uh, the priesthood and the archbishops and all that on the top and the common people on the Bible. But I want to tell you something. There ain't nothing worse than it in most Baptist churches. Most Baptist churches have their own order uh, of being on top of people. And uh, we've got pastors today, and I've never understood this. We've got pastors today that think they need a personal assistant. Now, I don't, I mean, if you're a, a million-dollar rock star, you probably need a personal assistant. I'm not sure what a personal assistant does. If you're a, if you're a, uh, a sports figure uh, or a great movie star, you probably need a personal assistant. But what a pastor thinks he needs a personal assistant for uh, when his ministry is dealing with people, I never figured it out. It reminds me of Origen. Origen was one of the greatest corruptors of the Word of God. Origen was so conceited in himself, you know what he did? He had 20 stenographers, 20 people with notepads following him wherever he went. So they would write down every word that he ever said because he felt like his words, no matter what they were, were so important that they could never be lost and somebody had to write them down. That's conceit. That's conceit in who you think you are, that you need somebody around you all the time to make sure every word does not fall to the ground and they have a, a, a record of it. Most churches today in modern Christianity is like the Christian version of the rich and famous. I mean, in most churches. And uh, you better get this. And this comes from experience. And this is why when you learn this, you never cater to rich people. You never fall into the trap as a pastor that any one family, oh, I've seen this, where we just can't lose this family. We just can't lose this family. Well, we do whatever we got to do. Cut whatever we got to cut. Fix whatever we got to fix. Compromise wherever. We just can't lose this family. There ain't no family that valuable in any church. There ain't no family worth compromising the standards of the Word of God. You know why pastors do that? They don't want to lose the family. You know why they don't want to lose the family? Because the family gives a lot of money to the church. I don't want to lose any families either. But you know what? I've told you many, many times. It happens in the reality and that's experience. But I need to tell you this, and you learn this in time. Any meaningful work that God has ever uh, built, I've never, seen, I've never seen it built with rich people. It's always built by common, ordinary people. I've watched some things over the years. Billy Graham, pretty much retired now. Billy Graham was a great, great, great preacher back in the beginning days. I've actually heard, seen videos or heard uh, him preach back in 1947 and 48 and 49 and up in the early 50s. Brother, he is a far cry from what he is today when he, or was today when he stood all polished and spoke for about 20 or 30 minutes. I actually saw him preaching uh, back there in the early 50s, and I mean his tie was off, his hair was all messed up, he was sweating like a stuck pig, and he was spitting everywhere, and he was preaching like nobody ever heard preach in my life. What happened to him? You know what happened to him? I'll tell you what happened to him. It. It's a great lesson to learn. <clears throat> I'll tell you what happened to him. Along the way, Billy Graham wanted to win people to Christ. Nothing wrong with that. Along the way, some evangelicals got a hold of Billy, and they said, you know what, Billy? We think you're a great preacher. We think you can reach the masses. And we've got what you need. you got the message and the preaching. we got the money to put you everywhere in this world. And you know what? They started putting in thousands and thousands. It was the four guys that did it. And they started putting in thousands and hundreds of thousands and probably millions of dollars in, the year in his ministry. But you know what came along with that money? Strings were attached. And they began to tell Billy, look, Billy, uh, you're going to go preach to this crowd over here. You can't say those things you said over here. going to make them mad. If they get mad, they won't come. You know what, Billy? You take too hard a stand on some of this stuff. You can't preach about hell like you do. You know what? You're going to preach to evangelicals who are refined people. You can't get your tie all out of shape, get all sweaty and spit on the front row. You can't pace up and down and scream and yell and shake your fist and preach the Word of God. They're too refined for that. You know what happened over the years? The people that came in with their money not only shaped him, but changed his very direction in ministry. Well, now here he stands, and the last time I heard him preach... He didn't believe in hell anymore. he didn't believe he thought that the Muslims were okay and going to heaven too. He completely made a reversal of where he was at. You know why? Because money came in, and when money comes in and somebody puts money into your ministry, it's only a matter of time that the strings attached with it, they begin to tell you. And then you know what happens, you get hooked on it. Money's, money's like dope. You get on the hook, man. You can't. Once you get a taste of the life, when you're out there with the shining lights and the newspaper ads and the whole world thinking you're the greatest evangelist in the world, you're not going go to the, you're not gonna go back to the dirt roads you were on. It just isn't going to happen. I had a good friend of mine as an evangelist. He's dead now. And he done, let me tell you something. This guy did more on a shoestring budget to reach millions and millions of people to Christ. And I can't ever remember a day when he had two nickels to rub together. He got the same thing. Some businessmen came to him and they said, hey man, we'd like to support your ministry. You know what you need to do? You need to form a board. You need to form a ministerial board and get some rich people, people with some money. You got a great work and you could, be, you could do 10 times more if you just got the right people on your side, build a ministerial board and let them take over your ministry, let them raise the money and you just go and preach. You know what he told me? He said, I'm not going to do that. You know why? He said, I know how those things work. Today I form a ministerial board and they put the money in and tomorrow the ministerial board decides I'm no longer the preacher and put somebody else in. He had some experience. Boy, once the money comes in and they get their claws in, I'll tell you, no meaningful work by God has ever been done, ever been built by rich people. It's always been the common people. In most cases, the God of the Bible in most churches have been replaced by the God of money. And uh, that's why when you go to hear him, you spirit here 40 minutes on money, and then you hear 20 minutes on the son of money, and then you get about 10 minutes in the Bible. Man said to me one time, and I told you this last week, we didn't get a chance to finish it. Man came to me one time and he said, if I win the lottery, I think it was $98 million. If I win the lottery, I'm going to give you $20 million to build a church. You got a great ministry, and I'm going to give you $20 million. Now, most pastors heard that. They'd call a special church meeting together and pray for the lottery. But you know what, folks? You realize as good as that sounds, this church getting dumped $20 million on it would probably ruin this church? You see, in ministry, and this comes with experience, this is what I want to teach you on our times together, men and women. I want to show you what I've learned by experience Experience tells me that's not a good idea. Because in ministry, not everything that looks good is good. And not everything that looks bad is always really bad. My old father in the Lord, Mel Sabaka, he had one of the great sayings, and he was faced with it too. And we look at this thing, you know, wow, what could we do in our church with $20 million? Look what we could build. Look what we could do. Look at all this. Look at all that. Old Mel used to say, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But he only gives it to us one hamburger at a time. Boy, there's some great wisdom in that. It would ruin this church. It would ruin most people. <clears throat> do you realize that the reason that we are in the mess we're in financially in most cases is because we can't handle mon- the money we already have? <laughs> I mean, if you don't have any responsibility and accountability with the money you have, what means you think somebody's going to give you $20 million or even a million dollars? All that's going to do is give you a million dollars worth more problems. The danger in any church or any Christian man or woman's life, and listen to this very carefully. The danger in any church, I don't care who it is, I don't care how big they are, I don't care how big they think they are, I don't care how conceited they think they are. The danger of any Christian or any church, man or woman, is getting to the place where you and I don't have to trust God for anything because we can just go out and buy it. There's no quick fix. You know, that's the mark of the Laodicean church. That's where we're at. Turn over to Revelation chapter 3. I'll show it to you. Revelation chapter 3. Here's the church that we are part of today, the Laodicean church age. And this is why I've told you many, many times my goal is to build a Philadelphian church in the middle of the Laodicean church period. A church that is based on one thing the Bible. The church that only needs one thing. Somebody says, What kind of church do you have? Are you independent? And I said, no, we're not independent. We're dependent. Too many Baptist churches are independent, and that means independent of even God. This church will never be independent. This church will always need to be, be dependent on the Word of God and the things that God gives it. Here's what it says. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot. (coughs) So then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Why? Verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and had need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable, poor, (coughs) blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear That's a reference to the judgment seat of Christ, if you haven't figured it out yet. And anoint thine eyes with salve that thou mayest see. There's the church today. A church that doesn't need anything. And the mark of the Laodicean church will always be that it has so much of everything that it has need of nothing. And boy, this church and your life and my life can never get to that place. Very few rich people ever do anything for God. You know Why? Because the God that they have is their money. It's just that simple. You ever notice the <coughs> great uh, money givers in this city? There's a word for it I can't think of. It starts with a P. What is it? Philanthropist. Philanthropist. That's right. You ever notice those guys? They always give start great foundations. And I'm not arguing with it. They always straight give start great foundations. They give great amounts of money. But you know what they always do? They always try to control it. They always say, well, it's got to go here, it's got to go there, it's got to be for this, it's got to be for that. And, of course, the reality is, give it to God and get out of the way. Then you have the Christians who leave it to God after they're dead. That's always a good one. You know, keep it in joy, like, buy everything you want, and then when you're dead and gone, don't need it anymore, then give it all to God. It sounds good, doesn't it? You know what? Some people think God is as stupid as they are. I ain't kidding you. You ever read the Bible over there in 1 Corinthians, uh, uh, when it comes down through there in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10? I mean, you talk about God reading a man's heart and knowing what's on a man's mind. When he says, well, I'm going to leave it all to God. But you know what? That's after I dead because, man, I want to have it all now. And then when I'm gone, I'll leave it all to God and he can do what they want to do with it. You ever see 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10? That great passage on the judgment seat of Christ? It says that the judgment seat of Christ, you get rewarded for the things that are done in the body. Not after you're gone. God got it figured out. He reads you like a book. He reads me like a book. Somebody gets up there and he says, uh, he says you know what? He says, uh, I'm going to give it all to God after I'm gone. God said, I don't want it after you're gone. It won't do you any good. You know what? Real faith is giving it all to me when you're alive. You know why God brings tough times financially in your life and my life? You know why this country is going through a depression right now or a recession, however you want to call it? You know why people, many times, God's people, you know why they lose their job? They don't lose the job for one or two reasons. They really do. And I've seen it. Sometimes you lose your job because God's got a better job for you. You know what? Losing your job is a scary thing. I get phone calls all the time from you in, in, in situations when you lose your job. It's a tough thing because you have families, you have bills to pay, maybe you just got a new house, <clears throat> maybe, you know, you're doing it, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, man, you lose your job. Hey, you know what? <clears throat> I'm telling you right now, <clears throat> and you can mark it down. As a child of God, <clears throat> when something like that happens, it only happens for one or two reasons, and you've got to decide. I can't decide for you. I've seen situations where somebody loses their job, And they've done what's right with God. They've done everything God wants them to do. They're growing up through the process of it. And you know what? They lose their job and for a moment they panic. And then they'll say, well, you know what? God's okay. Or they'll call me on the phone and and I'll say, well, you know what? You've done what's right. You hung in there. God will take care of you. And you know what, God? You know why God takes your job away? He takes your job away because he's going to give you a better one. Isn't that true, April? April called me this week, lost her job. little distraught. But underneath the distress, I saw a solidness. And I told her what I tell most people. I said, you know what? You won't have a problem finding a job. And I said, didn't I tell you this? I said, you've done what's right. You've hung in there. You've grown. You've done everything that God's asked you to do. I guarantee you, God didn't take your job away to leave you on a curb. And what happened? April, one day later, you got a better job, didn't you, huh? Well, Josh has lost his and been out now for nine weeks, hasn't got anything. You better look at your life, Josh. Something's wrong here when your wife gets a better job than you do? (laughs) He's going to retire, honey, and let you take care of him. I'll tell you where that's going. God always takes care of you. Now, you know what? And you got to look at this. you got a job and everything goes well. You don't do what's right with God. You don't take care of God. You don't do anything with God. You know what God will come down and do? Sometimes he'll come down and take it away from you just to get you to see that you're not doing what's right with what you have. You know, you say that to God's people, and they look like some of you look at me right now. Isn't that what you do with your children? When your kids have a toy and they don't play right and they really like that toy and it's a toy to, to be a car to go on the ground and they're beating with their brother and sister over the head with it? Or they're trying to force it down a dog's throat? Or you find it down inside a television set? Don't you walk over and say, give me that. You know what? You're not getting this back until you what? Learn how to do with it right. Right? Well, if you then being evil, now how do give good gifts to your children? How much more shall your Father in heaven give good things that to ask him? Sometimes when God gives you good things and we don't do with it right because he loves you, he takes it away. He doesn't take it away because he's mad at you. He's taking it away just like a parent takes it away to teach you a lesson. The question is, do you learn the lesson? He ain't going to let you starve to death no matter what. But the bottom line is, everything in our life we go through, we go through for a reason. Now, you get in a situation like that, I can't discern that for you. I can't look at you and say, well, he took it away from you because you wasn't doing what's right. Or he took it away from you because you were and gave it back to you. Were doing that. You have to decide that. But I'm telling you right now, that's what happens. God gave you the job that you have, the money you have coming in. He gave that so you could support yourself on the mission field. The quicker you learn that, the better off you'll be. Now, that old boy said to me, he said, well, if I win the lottery, I'm going to give you $98 million. This was my answer to him. I said, well, that's really nice. I said, that's big of you. But if God gave you $98 million, why not give it all to God? I mean, if God gave you $98 million in the first place and can you give it all away, cannot he give you another $98 million? What kind of faith is that? I'm gonna get ninety-eight million dollars. I'm gonna give you twenty, I'm gonna keep seventy-eight for myself. If God gave you the ninety-eight million dollars, then give the whole thing away and wait for God to give you another ninety-eight million dollars. Yeah, I got the same response from him that I'm getting from you. He didn't say anything either. You know why God won't give you 98 million dollars? You know why God ain't gonna give you a million dollars? Because he can't trust you with it, that's why. Mess you up. God give you a million dollars, and never hear from you again. Now it's okay. Some of you are looking like, oh yeah, oh you're saying that, hey, 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 hey. I ain't got a million dollars either. <laughs> <coughs> he can't trust me with it anymore than he can trust you. The difference between me and you is I know it would mess me up. <coughs> Experience. A fact. In church history, and we'll read about it when we study it, in church history, no man that ever was used of God to turn the world upside down ever had two nickels to rub together. That's why he had to trust God for everything. I think of the story of George Mueller. Most of you don't even know who George Mueller was. George Mueller lived about 1805, almost to the turn of the century, about 1898, 1890, somewhere in there. He's from Prussia, German. Moved to England. Tried to get into the ministry and tried to be a missionary and uh, nothing worked out for him. Got saved, God gave him a burden. He looked around in England and he'd have to understand England at that particular point, but there were just homeless kids everywhere. I mean, there were just thousands of kids that ran the streets with no place to go at night, nothing to eat. George Mueller got a burden for them. He took 26 girls, started his first orphanage. Over the next 70 years of his life, He built over 15 orphanages and housed over 20,000 kids. He had raised over $7.5 million in the course of a 60-year minute. Do you know how much $7.5 million would be back in 1850 to what it would be today? He raised every dime of it, never taking a dime from anybody. He prayed every dime in. He started with 26 girls and he wound up with 20,000 In his lifetime, he probably put 100,000 kids in the ministry because he provided an orphanage that fed them, gave them everything they needed, clothed them, gave them the Bible, had people work with them that were Christian and won them to Christ and then turned them out to go back and be preachers and missionaries. Incredible, incredible. Somebody said, you know what? When you talk like this and you tell stories like this, It's like talking about somebody living on Venus. We can't even relate to it. Somebody says, well, boy, I don't understand that. I've done, you know, I mean, uh, are there any stories like that? I don't understand why God did that with George Mueller and he won't do that with me. Well, maybe he read through the Bible 200 times, 100 times on his knees. Maybe that's something to do with it. You hear these stories and you hear these facts and you hear these truths about through history and it's a thing where it, that we can't even relate to it anymore simply because it's a day gone by that God uh, was doing great things. And God's not doing great things today in most people's lives. George Mueller is a great example of that. Then as you come on down and look at verse 17 through 21. Now these are great verses. And these great verses all uh, deal with the, how that we should, uh, as God's people, should respond when somebody uh, does us wrong. And it's great principles. They're hard, but they're great principles. And you'll find that when you get into the ministry and you get into dealing with people, that reality is, a, is much different than the fantasy that you think the ministry is. The Bible says there in verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. Now, in the modern world we live in, that's payback. My, I, love, I love the Star Trek movies. I like the series, but I really like the movies. And uh, they have Star Trek 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. One of my favorite is the one where it's called The Wrath of Khan. Remember that one? My favorite line in The Wrath of Khan is uh, Marc- uh, the guy that played Khan. Uh, R- R- yeah, yeah. He's up there and he says, he says, Revenge is a dish that is best served cold. <laughs> I love that. Unfortunately, it won't work for you and me as Christians. No revenge. He says, recompense to no man evil for evil. Now, this brings up the great biblical principle that we're going to learn about in in counseling. We won't get into it today. I told you that uh, when uh, we started this year, that I had strategically, as best I could, planned the book of Romans to get us to a point where, uh, you know, we uh, would get into these things and have a time when we hit New Year's. We're going to finish up the Romans here in probably another, oh, I don't know, uh, maybe another eight or nine months, depending on how long it takes to get through there. And, uh, and then we're going, to, uh, we're, going to, we're going to go into the book of 2 Corinthians. And I want to tie 2 Corinthians in with Romans because 2 Corinthians is going to take wherever you're at, on whatever level you're at, it's going to help you begin to understand the concepts behind ministry. And that's my goal. Uh, we've already started uh, the church history. And that was designed to put in there to get the thing up and running. That We get that part of it covered for those of you that wanted to get a historical, where you've come from. And then we're going to tie into that, once we're done in institute, we're going to tie in uh, the aspect of biblical counseling. On whatever level you are, if you're committed to doing it, taking you and understanding the biblical principles how to work them in your own life first and then use them in the lives of others through the principles. One of those principles goes right along with this. It's the principle of reacting versus responding. <laughs> Husbands, do you know why you get in problems with your wives? This is not so much true of the women. It can be. But you know why you and I get in a jam with, with our wives sometimes when we when we, get, when we say something we shouldn't say? Uh, and, it, it, and maybe it works both ways. I don't know. But here's the story. You come home and you have a tough day at work. And we all think that because we work, and our wife, if she doesn't work, stays at home, that she doesn't work. That's not true. She'd trade days with you at the office or watching those four little rugrats anytime you want to. And she comes, you come home and you're tired, and, and she's had a tough day too. Now, you're supposed to be the spiritual leader of your family. So you're supposed to be like Christ to her, see? And in being like Christ to her and being like in ministry, we always respond, we don't react. So the greatest example of responding versus reacting is you come home and you say something and she's had a tough day and uh, you're oblivious to it and, uh, because you think the, you're the center of the universe and you know, and you're oblivious to it. And she says something back that maybe might be a little snappy. Because she's had a bad day. Now, at that point in time, you have, you, have, you have a choice to make. You really do. And this is what it takes in ministry, because there's going to be times in ministry that people are going to say things to you, and you, have a, you, now, have a, you now have the chance to make it better or make it worse. And the best example is husband and wives in their scenarios because she co- you come home and, and you'll say something to her and she'll maybe say something not as pleasant back or if she had a tough day, she doesn't answer it the way we think she would. You know uh, She's not waiting there with our slippers and her coffee you know and all those things. And you're kind of irritated and you think to yourself, well, what did she do all day? I've been out here you know, working and uh, we had a, I had a tough day at work today. The computers broke. We all had to think, man, what is going on here? You know And she, you'll say something to her. She'll say something back. And at that point, you have a choice now. You know she said something to you that that was not the way it should be. Now, you're in charge. You can do one or two things. You can respond to it, or you can react to it. You're like a terrorist on an airplane. You have the hand throttle in here with a bomb strapped around you. And now you've just been told that if you blow yourself up, you don't get any virgins. (laughs) So you have a choice. You say, you know what? Oh, big deal. I'll just give myself up and go to Guantanamo and live like a king down there, you know? Or you say, what the heck? And you blow yourself up. You, have, you either respond or react to it, see? Now, you either say, okay, honey, that's fine. No problem. I, I, didn't mean to, I didn't mean to anything by that. I know you probably had a tough day. Or you say, what's wrong with you today? You're kind of edgy. Or you do this. This will really frost her off. She's sitting You you walk over and go... What are you doing? Oh, I'm just rubbing off the rough edges I see here. Oh, you're going to get punched (laughs) if you do that. You have the choice. You either respond or react. And when people do something not nice to you in in ministry or Christian life, you have the same deal. You can respond or you can react to it. It, it, It's hard to do. A, A Christian should never react but should always respond. When we react, it's in the flesh. When we respond, we take the biblical principle... And then we apply it and filter what somebody said to us, somebody did to us through the principle. And by the time it gets to the other end, it's it's pretty much taken care of. You know, it's a reality. The ministry is people. And there's two basic things in ministry with people that you're gonna have to realize. When you start working with people, if you ever get to the point in your life when you have a church someplace, or you're in a major part of area of ministry. These are the reality things. People will, one, they will love you, or two, people will hate you. And if you're really successful in ministry and God is really in your life, you'll get a third aspect, and that one is that, one, they will love you, two, they will hate you, and three, well, they will some people will love to hate you. But it's the way it works. In ministry, experience is absolutely vital. This is why I try to get you involved with people as soon as you're ready. If you're not ready to do somebody one-on-one, I'll put you with somebody, you know, uh, you know, last Thursday night. We had a host of visitors that came in to Bible study. I had six people that wanted to be disciple, And you know what? And many of you are going to work with your people and you have a great opportunity to do something. My, my job is to get you involved with people as quickly as I can. The ministry is like driver's ed. You know what? You can come to Sunday morning, Thursday night and come to all the classes just like you go to uh, driver's ed and you sit there and you watch the movies and you hear the books and you take the test. But until you get behind the wheel and actually get out on a highway, you're never learning how to drive. And ministry is the same way. I can teach you all the classes in the world. But until you get involved with somebody and help them and you learn the pattern of ministry, you learn the pattern of people, you learn, as I said last week, not just to see but to observe and you gain the ability to discern your situation and then biblically respond to it, it helps you better understand why some people of God's people do the things they do to other Christians. The greatest example, and I've talked about this before, if you ever get feeling down in a dump because people are against you when you're doing what's right or trying to do what's right, I've told you this before. Just go to the computer and type in Dr. Peter S. Ruckman. Last time I did it, been about a year ago, there were 68 pages of trash about him and and his brother Donovan. 68 pages. One guy on there who I know personally even took pictures and used Photoshop to put Donovan in a bar with women. I mean, he took obviously two pictures and then put Donovan's picture and did Photoshop and put it in a bar with women all around him and then put out there that Donovan was running out on his wife and going out there and in the bars, da 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 da. When the guy fabricated the picture, incredible. Incredible. I mean, uh, I'm telling you. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can say what you want about Brother Ruckman and you can think what you want to think, but the bottom line is this you wouldn't, if you look down in your lap today and you got a King James six to eleven authorized version, you wouldn't have it if it wasn't for him. This church wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. I'll tell you what. As far as I'm concerned, the greatest book he ever read or he ever wrote. Bar none. And I know we've got a lot of good commentaries out and we got a lot of good stuff out. But I'm telling you what, as far as I'm concerned, if you ever serious want to take the ministry, the greatest book that he ever read is a book simply called The Full Cup. And it's an analysis of his life from before he was saved up to when he got saved and walks you through as an autobiography he wrote himself about the ministry and what he went through and what he experienced. And he called it The Full Cup. Greatest book on ministry and its trials and blessings I have simply ever read in my life. Because, boy, when you start to do the work, you see this verse in reality. You see this work in reality. I mean, uh, I, I know both those guys. I know the guy. I was back there in those days. I know why this guy hates Ruckman. And it comes down to the fact that he's he's insanely jealous of what God has given him in the ministry. And so he tried to do these things to make him look like he's somebody. He's conceited in his own mind. And uh, it's it's just that simple. I've seen guys like that. I had a guy one time that Uh, right now he's a pastor of one of the biggest cult churches down here in Blue Springs. And uh, he was in my ministry a number of years ago. Uh, It was probably 15, 20 years ago. And I remember one time I took him, I took, he wanted to go with me when I would go out to preach. So I took him down to Alabama with him. And I had a church down there that I knew the guy and he wanted me to come down for a revival. So I took this guy with me. And we stayed in a hotel together. And uh, we went out, dinner with a pastor, you know, and, uh, and, and, I uh, went out to eat, come back to the hotel. We were sitting around just talking, and the, the, the door, somebody knocked on the door. Well, I opened up the door, and there was probably about 15 high school, college kids uh, out there that uh, had heard, uh, knew we were, I was coming, and uh, found out where I was staying. And they were sheepish about it, but they said, Brother Alexander, uh, we just can't wait till uh, when you start Sunday. Uh, he says, could we, could we all come in, or we go someplace, and, and we just want to study the Bible right now. And I said, well, yeah, if you want to come on in. So, I mean, we packed that hotel room out. We sat there for three and a half hours, and they just had the time of their life going asking questions about the Bible. And you know what? That kid saw that, and that kid saw that, and, 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 and that, from that point on, that kid had a desire, a desire that that's what he wanted. You know what he did? Oh, we went back, did the revival, went back, and about six weeks later, he got his wife in the car, and drove back to Alabama and that church, got in the same hotel, called all those kids up and invited them back over for a Bible study. You know why? Because he wanted to be like me. He, just, he, he was so insanely jealous of the fact that a bunch of, to me, it was just like, okay, here we go again. To him, it was what? He was so insanely jealous over the fact that he wanted people around him all the time to learn the Bible. He made one of the bigger messes out of it and taught some things he never should have taught. I got a phone call about four days later and half the people in that church were ready to kill him. Arrogance does not replace experience when it comes to the ministry. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you. You know what? I'll tell you one thing. Great example. Never one time in all the years has Ruckman ever spent five minutes on those things publicly that anybody said about him. You can go on... You can go on the website and you can just see it everywhere. I mean, and never one time does he waste time doing that uh, because the Bible simply says that that's not what we're supposed to do. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You know why he doesn't do it? I mean, you want to know why? I'll tell you, first of all, because he's got more grace than they've got. That's why. He understands that real Christians don't do those kind of things. Doing an unchristian act back to a person who did one to you just makes you like them. He's learned that through experience. He's learned by experience that those kind of things never hurt the ministry, but in reality, they help establish the ministry. He's learned to choose the battles that he fights. And the third great lesson that he's learned through experiences is the great concept of time. Time will always prove in any situation who's right and who's wrong in any given situation. That's why patience is so important in ministry. That's why you don't recompense evil for evil. Hey, let me tell you something. In 35 years of ministry, I've seen it all. I've seen God's people get mad at the preacher or mad at the church. Coppa, I'll show you attitude, you know. And uh, uh, they you know, leave the church, get mad, and somebody in the church, and 20 years later, they've lost everything they had with God. 20 years later, they're right back out in the world again. 20 years later, they're right back into the bars, right back into the booze, right back into the cigarettes. And, uh, you know, and the tragedy that is, is they lose their kids. You know, the devil's not dumb. And many times they get mad, they leave the church. When they leave the church, the kids are four or five years old. 20 years later, the kids are in their 20s or mid-20s. And you couldn't touch those kids with the gospel now. And the devil just grabs them and they're on their way to hell and the devil goes out the door laughing. I mean, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I've seen guys get an attitude. They think they know more than a preacher. They criticize him. They decide no church can teach them. And they go out and start their own. And uh, you see how that works out. Five years later, the church they left is still going and blowing, and they're just blowing. I'm telling you, in ministry, arrogance or being wise in your own conceit is no substitute for experience. My favorite expression to people like that is say, hey, you know what, no problem. I'll tell you what we'll do. Five years from now, let's go to lunch. I'll even buy it. Let's sit down, and five years from now, let's see where you're at and where I'm at and where God's at because time proves all things. I had a buddy of mine one time. He's a pastor, and he's a good friend of mine. And he was going through something one time that was really tough. He took a church, and that church had given him all kinds of problems, and he had some good people in it, but he had some bad people in it, and they were just giving him fits. I mean, they were, they were just clobbering him. And I talked to him on the phone and tried to encourage him. And, uh, you know, he was going through some tough time. And uh, I, I told him, I said, you know what? It, 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 you want to let God justify you. I said, you don't want to get into the thing where you try to publicly justify yourself. Now, if somebody comes to you and says, well, so-and-so is saying, and you can d- deal with it that way, but publicly, you never want to respond to it. And he said, well, he says, I, he said, I'm dealing with it. And he says, uh, I said, well, good. I said, let me know how you're dealing with it, because we all ought to deal with it. He said, well, I'm writing poetry. I said, Poetry? He says, yeah, man, I'm, I'm in my Bible, and I'm looking at these things, and I'm taking what I'm going through, and the Bible says recompense no men for evil, so uh, I, 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 I just, I'm kind of, I'm just writing poetry. And I, I've learned years later, he gave it to me, this has been 15 years ago, and I, I, I've never forgotten this poem. But you know, it's a true thing. you got to realize that in your life, when you go through things, we lose sight of the fact that many times you're doing it, you're going through it because of what you're doing for God. Jamie and I have a little thing when she gets in a, a tough situation or I get in a tough situation. We always get together and compare notes, and we always got this little thing we do. Remember how it goes out? You want to just show them how we go. This is what we do with each other. I'll do the top one, you do the bottom one, and then we'll split. This is what we do. I say, What's the matter, honey? Oh. She'll say, What's the matter, Dad? And I say, oh. And you, either I'll do it to her or she'll do it to me. And it breaks the ice. It brings us back to reality. We just simply dish. It, it don't mean nothing Nothing. it don't don't mean nothing (laughs) it don't mean nothing we do that about 20 minutes okay (laughs) and then we laugh and we go on with it and all this but i gotta tell you the poem he wrote it's called the bugs on the windshield of life oh no it's great it's great I wrote it down here. I had, to, I had to find it this morning. I had it back in my file someplace and I finally filed it right before I got here. This is what he wrote Oh, the bugs on the windshield of life, full of anger and stirring up strife. Don't be afraid because they can't break the glass. Just keep on driving, keep your foot on the gas. Oh, the bugs on the windshield of life, spewing out words that cut like a knife. And some are so scary with wings, big and fat. But they will end soon when they finally go splat. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you what, that's a true statement, man. He says, don't worry, they never break the glass. And then he told me, he says, and when they hit the windshield and they go splat, everybody sees what was really on the inside of them. I thought that was pretty prophetic. Now now look at the last part of verse 17. This is another great principle. This goes along with it. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. That's great advice. Take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. It says, therefore, seeing that we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, 99% of American churches and ministries and and pastors fall into this category. Three things. One, hidden things of dishonesty. What does that mean? That means they got another agenda than what you see on the outside. Two, walking in craftiness. Uh, To me, walking in craftiness, I got an example about that in the Old Testament. I call it the ox cart uh, ministry. Remember back in the Old Testament, and you get asked this question in Bible study many, many times. Remember back when uh, the Philistines back there had the uh, had the, ox, had the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant? And finally the nation of Israel goes back and gets it back. And they're bringing that thing out, and they got it on an ox cart. And they're all walking down along the side of it, you know, and uh, the ox stumbles. And uh, the cart begins to shift. And uh, Uriah thinks that it's going to fall. And, and he puts his hand up to grab the ark to keep it from hitting the ground. And what happens? God kills him. You know, that story bothers a lot of people. I have people all the time to say, boy, that doesn't, I mean, you know what? You try to do a good act and a good deed and God came down. What, did God have a bad day that week or what was going on that day? Uh, well, God can't have a bad day because there ain't no days in heaven. So it can't be that idea. But he says, he says, you know what? He said, that really bothers me. But when you look at the analogy of that story. You see the whole picture of that, and it brings up what he's talking about there, as far as I'm concerned. And it brings up the great aspect of the the walking and craftiness. You see, the Ark cart back there uh, was not the way that God intended the Ark of the Covenant to be carried. I don't know if you know it or not. You go back in Leviticus, that Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be, it had rings on the side of it, and there were staves or poles that they put through those rings. That Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be carried on the shoulder of people. And that Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be, uh, the, the weight of that was in those you know, staves. You had two guys up front, two guys in the back, and they carried that thing. You know, you know what the analogy of that is? That Ark of the Covenant is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and a picture of the central part of Israel's uh, ministry for God. Without the Ark of the Covenant, they had nothing with God. And it's a picture of our ministry being in the person of Jesus Christ and that God has given us. Now, They had lost the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines had it. What did God do when the Philistines got it? He plagued them. He gave them diseases. Finally, they called him on the phone and said, hey, come get this thing back. When Israel went back to get it, we see that the time without the ox cart had not done them any good because they'd forgotten the way they're supposed to carry that ox cart, and so they put it on a cart. Now, you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of modern-day ministry in most churches today. The ministry, that Ark of the Covenant, was to be carried on men's shoulders. Why? Because they were supposed to bear the weight and the burden of carrying that Ark of the Covenant just like you and I are to bear the weight and the burden of the ministry. Okay? Kind of like they didn't want to carry it anymore, so they found a personal assistant to carry it for them. See? And God says, you don't carry that thing on an ox cart. That's a Philistine ox cart. You know what the Philistines were a picture of? They're a picture of the world. You know what that whole is a picture of? It's a picture of today taking the ministry of God, i.e., the Ark of the Covenant, and putting on a worldly system to carry it through. That's the problem. And God said, that ain't going to happen. And God killed him. And Israel had lost the perspective of how they're to carry that Ark And today in ministry, we have lost the perspective of how we're to do the ministry so we have the hidden things of dishonesty, we walk in craftiness, and oh, the third one, handling the word of God deceitfully. You see, the real job of a a pastor or any minister is to renounce those things. And it says, by manifestation of truth, you see, by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. What does that mean? How do you manifest truth? You don't do that by preaching. You don't manifest truth by preaching. You put forth truth. But if you want to manifest truth, you manifest it by living the truth, not preaching the truth. It says commending. You know what commending means? It means to commit. It means commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. It simply means committing who you are so your people see who you are with no hidden agendas. Every church ought to have an open door policy. You ought to be free to ask whatever question you want to ask, whatever you want to know. If there's something you don't understand or something you don't agree with or something you don't like, maybe you don't have all the facts, maybe you don't have all the answers, uh, you you ought to have a right to be able to go and ask any question you want to ask. I've always thought ministry needs to be that way. Nothing to hide. What you see is what you get. You have a question, you have a right to come and ask that question no matter what it may be. If it's something that you want to know about this or why is this done the way it is, you know what? You'll never get a negative response from me because I'll tell you what it is. Now, here's the problem. If you got a question, go to the person who has the answer. Going to somebody else who doesn't have the answer, that's going to cause you problems. You want the answer? Go to whoever's got the answer. But that's the way it has to work. Now look at verse 18. Another great verse. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now that's a great concept. You know the reason why he says it that way? It's real simple because it's not always possible to do that. I'm going to tell you something. In dealing with people, in dealing in ministry, there's going to be some people, no matter what you do, they will never make it right. They'll never do what they need to do. Uh, you, will, you, will, you will go to the grave before they ever uh, turn the corner on it. And you better, you better understand that that's just the way it is. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Many of the times, the problem is not really you. You realize that if you're really hitting on all eight cylinders with God, and you're doing what God wants you to do, people who are not hitting on all eight cylinders, they're not going to want to be around you. And the farther they get, the less they're going to want to be around you, because every time they're around you, they basically get reminded of where they're not where, they're not where they should be. And they get mad at you because you represent God. And they hang out with you uh, when, uh, when, when they hang out with you when you live right and they don't really want to live right. It just reminds them of where they're at. And so it, it makes a problem for them. I've seen situations where people came into this church but some of you brought them in and they're no longer here. And uh, you, they, they brought you in. And when they brought you in, they were on fire for God. And they taught you the Bible. And they did everything for you the way that they were supposed to do. It, and then something happened in their life. And if they got farther away from God didn't want to deal with it, and before they left... Uh, and I've had this happen all through my life. The, the guy will come in to me and he'll say, well, you know what, so-and-so's this, so-and-so's that, and that is the very person who, who brought them in and discipled them and worked with them. You know what in most cases that means? That means there ain't nothing wrong with so-and-so. The problem is with the person because you're not doing where you what you need to do, and, and they still are. And then sometimes it happens more often than not. It happens because... Don't ever think for a minute that God doesn't put in, or the devil doesn't put in satanic implants in churches. Now, I know that up till last Thursday night, some of you were naive about that, weren't you? And then we asked a question about Haiti, and we took the next hour and a half and showed that thing and broke that thing down and showed you on a worldwide scope how the devil works across this world. And I tell you something, my friend, he works the same way in churches. Hard to believe. It's hard to believe. Uh, the key to the devil's implants is always going to be counterfeit and infiltration. But I'll tell you what, when you follow the models, you realize that the Lord himself in his earthly ministry was not free from it because he had, 11 apo- he had 12 apostles and he says in John chapter 6, verse 70, that one of them, Judas, was a devil. You know what Judas was? He was a satanic implant into the Lord's earthly ministry to stop the work that God wanted to get done. Now, if the Lord is not Will not escape it. Do you think we will? And sometimes you have to deal with that. And uh, you know what? That's why Paul says uh, in, uh, in uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18, he says, Mark them that cause division. Now, I've always thought that was interesting. You know, I never just take a, a, the way something is said in the Bible as the way it's supposed to be said. If I read a book over here, you know, and it says what it says, I just take it for that. But not the Bible. When the Bible, when Paul uses the word mark those that cause division, I know what a mark means in the Bible. And I know there's a man coming who is going to have a mark. And I know the first man in the Bible that caused a problem had a mark. And I know that that word mark was used because he's not only telling us to mark the people, but he's telling me that that person is going to be satanically connected. So you mark them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Bible's a great book. Interesting choice of words. Now, the rule of thumb is this. You never attack them. You always let them attack you. And the next verse shows you why. And it shows you more how to deal with it. Look at verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, and what is written here is a quotation out of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. In other words, don't take it personal. It's God's work. And God is not only keeping the record of who's doing what, but mark it down, folks. He's also keeping a record of who's doing what to who. Now, you don't have to worry about it. That's why it says give place to wrath. You know what that place is? At the foot of Calvary, under the blood. You never take it personal. You realize that you're in a ministry and you're representing God. A lot of people are going to hate God in various stages of their life, and they're going to take it out on you. I mean, it would be nice if they ripped their clothes off, when on a hill in a full moon and killed a cat and screamed at God and cussed him, but they're not going to do that. They'll kill you instead. Get used to it. It's part of it. You don't, have to, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to take it personal. It's God's work, and he's keeping a score. And I, I've, I, you know, I, I, I've, seen, I've seen this in action many, many times over many, many years. And you know what? God, you know how God avenges you sometimes when you're wrongly under attack and you're just trying to do what God wants? And I know sometimes we cause our own messes, and I understand that, but I'm talking about in the pure sense here. You know the greatest single single thing that God can do to avenge you, and that's what he says. He says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, if you're a person, and I don't think you probably are, but just so you get it, if you're somebody who's going after another Christian openly on an ongoing basis, you better read the last part of that verse. You would do a lot better if you had my revenge than you would have God revenge. But God says, "Uh-uh, I'll take care of this." And I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You know how God, you know, you know how God does that. You know the greatest single thing that God can do to avenge you and me? No, I know how we think about it and I know what you're thinking. And it's not to kill them. See? You say, "Oh, I don't want him killed. I just want him crippled for life in a car wreck." No, 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 no. No, no. Well, no, I just have God kill their kids. No, 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 no. Well, I just have God bankrupt them and they lose their house. No, 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 no. You know, oh, no, no, I don't want any of that. I just have God give them cancer, give them tuberculosis, you know, give them AIDS, give them this, give them that. No, 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 no. No, no, I just have God burn their house down. No, I just have God kill their dog. No, don't kill the dogs. No, 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 none of those things. The greatest thing that drives people crazy. I'm telling you, I've seen this all of my life. And the biblical principles behind this found in the book of Proverbs, we'll get into when we get into biblical counseling. But I'm going to tell you, nothing drives a person crazier than when you have a person who they think God should not use, who God won't use, who God can't use, who they just trash up one side and down the other, and God just keeps blessing that person That drives them nuts. The greatest thing that God can simply do in your life is simply keep blessing you. It just drives, I talked to Ruckman one time, and I told him, I said, man, I said, I don't know anybody gets their rear end kicked more than you do. And he said, well, he said, just come to the territory, brother. But this is how he said it. Well, just come to the territory, brother. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I know, but man, don't you get tired of it? He said, brother, let me tell you something. He said, man, I've been in this thing now for almost 40 years. I said, you know what? He said, I'll tell you what I can't stand about people criticizing me and clobbering me. And I said, well, what is it? Because you seem like it don't bother you. He said, well, it doesn't bother me, but this is what does bother me. He said, every time somebody comes down and publicly nails me, God gives me another ministry. <laughs> and he said, every time somebody comes down and publicly trashes me or brings up this or brings something up here, he said, God just dumps another blessing on me. And he said, I just can't deal with it because he said, they got more ministries and more blessings. And I thought to myself, that's how God does it, you see. And you know what happens? You know why that doesn't hurt your ministry? Smart people figure it out. People who are in the Bible, they start seeing, well, they're saying this about Brother Ruckman and they're saying he did all these things, but God keeps blessing him. Somebody's wrong somewhere. See? Time. When nothing else tells, ladies and gentlemen, get it down. When nothing else tells, time will tell. That's why you got to be patient. That's why if you get in ministry and you do a work for God, you know what? There's no defense for biblical, unconditional, Holy Ghost, God, in your life. Uh, That's why he says in verse 20, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. You know what? You ought to have a show in your heart if you're driving down the road in the middle of the night and a driving rainstorm, and trees are being blown all over the place, and it's just raining cats and dogs, and it was just an absolute mess. And you drive down there, and you drive by, and you see a car off the side of the road, and somebody out there with a flashlight with a flat tire, and they can't get the thing down, and they're down there. and You drive by, and you see it's your worst enemy. What do you do? Do you honk the horn? <laughs> do you honk the horn and wave? Do you stop for a minute, put the weather down, and say, Hey, is it wet out there? Let me tell you what you ought to do. Tell you what we ought to do. You know what you do? Pull your car up behind them. You get out. If they're soaking wet, you let them get in the car and dry off and you change the tire for them. That's what Jesus would do, see? That's what we need to do if you find that opportunity. You never, you never you never win anything by becoming just like them. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, soft answer turneth away wrath. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says that uh, uh, hatred stirs up strife, but love covereth all sins. And uh, you know what? They expect you to treat them exactly like they've treated you, but you don't, and bang, it hits them right between the eyes. Now look at verse 21, another great principle. Another great principle. And this is good for you, and it's good for me. It's good for everybody. It says this, because this can happen. Be not overcome with evil. Now look at that. You ever seen a Christian like that? You ever seen a Christian that just can't forgive, can't forget, obsessed with something, bitter, angry? I mean, got a mean spirit. I mean, come on. I mean, I've seen God's people hate people, carry a grudge for 20 years over something that should have been dealt with an hour and a half after it happened. But I'll tell you, did you ever see a Christian like that overcome with evil? The place that every other word out of their mouth is, is a negative thing towards somebody. Every other word out of their mouth has to do with with something that is not positive and negative. I've absolutely observed, I mean, absolutely obsessed with rage and hatred. I mean, you can see it dripping off their lips like venom. Everything that they say, it just has a negative connotation. Anger. One little word can set them off into a 25-minute tirade. And all all the time, uh, they claim to be God's child. You know, in church history, when I was studying it, I told you the other night I probably read over 2,000 books as I was coming through church history. But I can't. I wish I could find where I read this. I wrote it down. I'm famous for writing things down. In the last four or five years, I've, I wrote where I found it. Because for many, many years, I didn't. And I can't find the books that I found it in. But I read this. And this is great. And you want to remember this. It says people. And I read this by somebody who, like I said, he wrote this in a book on church history, and he was dealing with the persecution of the church. But it's a great line. He says, you know, in, in history, and it's true in life, people who claim to be God's true people are always persecuting those who are God's true people. And he says, you know how you know that? Because God's true people don't persecute anybody. That's a great line. People who claim to be God's true people are always persecuting those who are God's true people. And the reason for that is, is God's true people never persecute anybody. You know what? If you've got the power of God in your life and God's using you, what do you care what people think? If you've got the hand of God in your life and the hand of God is God is using you, what do you care? And nine times out of ten, the reason why they're angry is just because God isn't using them. I mean, uh, you got to move on, people. There's a great passage in Hebrews chapter 12, and boy, it is so good, and I've seen it. It it, it talks about the, the root of bitterness. What a great concept that is, root of bitterness. You know, bitterness is what anger turns into when anger isn't dealt with biblically. Bitterness is what your life goes to when you don't deal with those things in your life that have to be dealt with. It's a very subtle thing. I don't think anybody who ever woke up in their life bitter about anything ever intend to get bitter. Bitterness is a very subtle thing as it's laid out in the book of Hebrews. And that's why it's called a root of bitterness. You see, roots of a tree. I mean, you take a little tree and you plant it down in your yard, you know. And you look at that thing and you say, boy, that's a pretty nice little tree. Two years later, you decide, well, you know what? We don't want that tree there now. You can probably pretty much dig it up, put your car on, pull it up. You let that tree down there for 15, 20 years, try to dig it up then. Those roots are down so far and so deep, you'll never get it out. You'll never get it out. That's why he used the word of root of bitterness. You get out of fellowship with God, you get your nose bent in a joint about something, somebody does something to you, and it may be a legitimate thing. Maybe it isn't. I don't care. The blood of Jesus Christ covers for all sin. But you know what? Roots grow best in the dark, don't they? I'll tell you something else. Roots grow best in the dirt, your flesh. I'll tell you something else. Day by day, the deeper they get, the stronger they get. And one of these days you wake up and you look at everything in life and you where where God intended you to have a box of crayons that had 40 colors in it that you could just paint the most beautiful, colorful pictures of life, you got one color and it's black. And that root of bitterness got into your life, got into your soul, and everything you see, every circumstance you deal with, every circumstance reminds you of the one you can't get rid of. You know what the problem is? It even tells you what the problem is in verse 15. It said, fail the grace of God. What does that mean? Mean you didn't get saved? Uh uh. No, you're saved. But you're supposed to give grace to people in your life just like God gave you. And when you fail that grace in your life and you can't give people the grace that God gave you, you know where you wind up? Bitterness. And you wind up being just like this overcome with evil. Overcome with evil. Isn't it strange to you that so many people who claim to be Christians are so far from God's character in the way they deal with life and people and situations by what they do and what they say? I mean, I tr- I mean, uh, the tr- I mean, uh, look at the last part of verse 21. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the true child of God doesn't get overcome with evil, but he overcomes evil with good. Now, these are the character qualities that Christ had. These are the character qualities that need to be built into this church into each of us. I'm not going to tell you you're going to hit them all every time and do it right. I don't. But that's beside the point. The bottom line is that every day you put these principles in your life you form what you do by reacting versus responding. You take these character qualities and you say, you know what? Let's get the reality. If I'm going to be God's woman, if I'm going to be God's man, let's strip it all down. Let's get the varnish off. Let's get all the big Bibles out of the way and all the study notes and all the things that you got piled around you. Let's get it down to the where it really works. Though the principles in his life match up with the principles in your life and my life. You see, here's what we're going to change. By design, you can't do it all at one time. You build a church in a process just like you build people through a process. But the bottom line is this In the last six and a half years, we've studied the book and we've learned the book. And many of God's people in this very building know the Bible. And that's commendable. I had to get you to that point. Now we're going to put a whole new concept together on whatever level you are. If you just came in, if you've been around for a couple of months, years, or you've been around forever, whatever level you want, if you want to find out how to be used of God, get the right principles, learn how to respond versus react and learn how to do it the biblical way, then this is where it's at. You see, we spent a lot of time getting to know the book. That's good. Now we're going to take the time to get to know the author of the book. And brother, there is a difference. Many of God's people know the book. They just don't know the author of the book. I'm not talking about just being able to preach well, teach well. I'm talking about now the very principles of God dictating what you and I do and how we respond and or how we react based on the character qualities of God. I talked about models. Jesus is the greatest model that we could all have. I've analyzed this thing many, many times in my life. I first saw the models of how important they were too many years ago to remember. And then I analyzed that whole thing over my lifetime. I've studied every character in the Bible. i went out and laid every, tried to lay out every character trait I could find, good or bad. I've tried to catalog them and line them up to the book of Proverbs. I, I tried to do everything I could do, but I, I come up with, a, at the end of the day, I, I come up with this. The greatest single example of you and me, of what we should be and how we should deal with people, circumstances, and situation is simply the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I understand why God put all the other men in the Bible. I mean, you got Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob, you got David, you got Samuel, you got incredible, probably 100,000 characters you can learn something from. But you know what? the thing that they all have in common, they're still all sinners and they fail. You know what God had to do? He gave you a whole book from Genesis to Revelation that deals with every man and woman that you can learn everything about. And then he gives you one perfect example. And that perfect example is his son. You look at David, you can learn some great things, but he screwed up. You can at Solomon, you can learn some great things, but he messed up. You can look at Samuel, he did some great things, but he messed up. You can look at Abraham, tremendous study, but he screwed up. There's only one man in the Bible that you can go to. I'm not saying you can't learn from everything else, but you've got to recognize that there's one perfect model, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the character qualities we've been coming down through in, in Romans chapter 12 aren't the character qualities of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, David, Solomon. As much as they may have loved God and the Word of God, they're not the character qualities of those guys. Those are the character qualities of God that those guys had to get in their life, just like you and I do. Remember Jesus on the cross? Luke chapter 23, verse 34. They had beat him. They'd spit on him. they betrayed him. They'd lied about him. They'd falsely accused him. they hit him in the face. they pulled out his beard. They had whipped him. they put hands in his nails in his feet. And finally, they hung him up on a cross, naked before the, all the world. They made lo- fun of him. They made sport of him. They, they antagonized him. They, 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 they tried to give him the wrong stuff to drink. In every aspect of his life, he had about his worst day in ministry that you could ever hope to have. And yet in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, he simply says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know what? I'm going to tell you something. Maybe you can't get here yet, but in ministry, this is why you don't take it personal because that same line is true in dealing with people. Most of the time, the people that are persecuting you and want to stop you in ministry don't even know why they're doing it. That's why you can't take it personal. Like the old poem says, they're not going to break the glass. Just keep driving and keep your foot on the gas. That's it. Now let me just talk to you and then I'm done. On the cross, he took the abuse and took it to himself. He took the beatings, the spitting, the betraying, the lying, the false accusations. He took the whippings, the nails in his hands and his feet. He took the terrible things they said about him. He took the terrible things that they accused him of. And he took that abuse so you and I could have what he had for us. Do you understand that? Do you realize that he took all of that so he could give you and me what he had for us? I don't think we grasp that. But let me just say this. That is why you need to take it for him. That is why you need to let them ridicule you, mock you, false accusations about you, That's why you need to let them whip you, beat you, and even if it comes down to it, kill you. Because the bottom line is, where he became your sacrifice on the cross to get to you what he had for you, he now wants you and me to be a living sacrifice for him. You know what? That doesn't lessen the abuse. It doesn't lessen the ridicule. It doesn't lessen the hurt. It doesn't lessen the pain. It doesn't lessen the adversaries that are going to come after you. But you take what they've got for you, that you may get to others what God wants to get through you to them, through your body becoming a living sacrifice. He was a sacrifice on the cross, and he took it all that you and I might get what he had, okay? Now he wants you and I to take what we have to others, and you'll have to pay a